Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google certificates. Faster my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. <laughs> Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash get more. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis Anderson, Republican pollster with the firm Echelon Insights. And each week we're going to dig deep into the latest polling stories of the week on news, politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. So this week, uh, welcome new listeners. We're uh, breaking records every week. We've had our biggest download day yet this past week and our second and third biggest download days yet the previous week. So if you're a new listener, please take a moment to write a quick review on iTunes or Stitcher or both uh, and tweet out to your uh, friends that you like the show so we can get even more new listeners. And you can always find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Margie O'Mara and Kay Soltis-Anderson and at the pollsters. So what are the top lines this week? And then there were 16. With our first Republican dropping out of the field, we'll look at how things stand on the eve of the second Republican debate. We'll also talk about the very interesting political questions that were posed at this year's Miss America pageant. Does America agree with Miss America? The NFL is back in action. Is Brady as good as ever? And do his peers think he's a cheater? We'll also talk about the weather uh, currently affecting California. Um, it's plagued by serious drought and wildfires. We'll look at some polling on what people think can be done. Um, we'll also talk about pumpkin spice and how it has invaded everything. Will the pumpkin spice tyranny end? And finally, it's New York Fashion Week time, but it's also time to figure out, can you keep that white blazer out after Labor Day? We will investigate. So if you're listening to this before the Republican, the CNN Republican debate on Wednesday or after, either way, it, probably still finding Trump and Carson uh, at the top of the list as they've been in a lot of polling that's come out in the last uh, few weeks. But as we uh, gear off or think about the debate that's about to happen, we look at not just Trump and Carson, but also other th trends beneath the surface on the everybody else, the 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 two th th numbers three through sixteen. So, what's going on there, Kristen? So, uh, you, again, you still have Trump and Carson atop the field and heading into the debate. You know, they're the clear, I guess, quote unquote, front runner and second front runner. Um, but beyond that, Perry is now out, and you've seen really big shifts in support for folks like Scott Walker. So, Scott Walker is the one big headline that we mentioned last week. Um, uh, Iowa made Walker, and it seems that Iowa can break Walker, that he um, originally rose to the top of the polls because of a strong performance in Iowa. He was kind of filling that Tim Pawlenty role, if we're, we're going back and looking for, you know, the analogy of who filled this role four years ago, where he was really strong in Iowa, and then all of a sudden just 
has collapsed. And now the most recent um, YouGov polling shows Walker at only 4% in Iowa, and he's only at 3% in New Hampshire, and he's only at 3% in South Carolina. Um, when you take a look nationally, uh, Monmouth's uh, New Hampshire poll in July, you had Scott Walker um, at 7%. He's down to 2% in New Hampshire. And then ABC Washington Post had a national poll of Republicans and Republican leaners. And there you've seen Scott Walker dip from sort of, uh, you know, the, the low teens down to 2%. The big so candidate with the biggest drop by far. By far. Um, the other person to, I think, keep an eye on, you know, now that you've had the rise of Carly Fiorina, you've had a reshuffling of the top 10. Um, the person who I think is helped the most at this point by the fact that CNN started with those kind of weird debate criteria um, poll guidelines where you were including really old polls. The person who's being saved by that at the moment is Chris Christie, who's seen his numbers fall as well. Um I mean, he was always sort of toward the bottom of the pack, but you've, you've really seen him sort of fall off um, nationally. He's now in that kind of 11th place spot. So uh, what's interesting is, you know, you've got uh, Walker and Christie, the two candidates who kind of made their name being governors who were in blue states, but they were kind of confrontational and took on unions and stuff. And so in a way, they were both kind of going for the same piece of the pie. And it seems that Donald Trump has just eaten both of their candidacies alive, because if you're hungry for someone who's confrontational, Donald Trump just may be your guy. He's eaten the entire pumpkin spice pie by himself. He's eaten the entire <laughs> pumpkin spice field. <laughs> um, so so I have a few thoughts, right? So the first with Rick Perry, you know, it, it goes to show on the eve of the debate or after the debate, if you're listening to this another day, uh, how important these debates can be and how closely actually primary voters around the country, uh, it seemed to be playing, paying to what's going on in the, in the national dialogue because Perry had – Obviously, a very big gaffe last time around when he couldn't name the three federal agencies he wanted to cut. It showed he didn't have a basic command of the material necessary in order to be president. And he couldn't really move beyond that. I mean, he's a governor of a huge state. He's, you know, the, I think he's the longest serving governor in the history of Texas is certainly up there. Uh, he had a, a full team. And, um, you know, rebooted his campaign this time around by hitting the books. And he still couldn't really uh, gain traction, I think, as a result of that debate. Now, Scott Walker had a really big moment early on in this uh, election season where he had a really good visit to Iowa. He also has his union union busting uh, message. Um, but those two things really can't make a, haven't been able to make a full, uh, successful continuation of his candidacy. I mean, you see that he's dropped after some mediocre performances over the spring and summer where he showed that he could get, um, dragged off message easily or maybe wasn't following closely what was, uh, some of the national trends. He had, a, I think, a lackluster performance in the last debate. And, um, you know, he hasn't really had a moment. And it reminds me of when Chris Rock said when he hosted one of the music awards many years ago to Ricky Martin, who was, you know, had La Vida Loca and then had nothing after that. Right. And he said, Ricky Martin needs a hit like a crackhead needs another hit. And and that's how I feel when I look at Scott Walker. He had this, you know, he had this moment and early on and, you know, can he sustain it? He hasn't really quite been able to catch fire since then. And, and people seem to have uh, caught notice. And Chris Christie, you know, Chris Christie it is. 
I mean, you can yell at voters in New Jersey, and that's okay because I'm from New Jersey, and it seems very familiar to me. His kind of Jersey shtick, you know, does it play? Does it play in Peoria? Does it play in you know? Does it play in Iowa? Right? I, and I'm not sure it, it has. When if you're a candidate, if you're a voter looking for someone with not the most right wing views of the field, you can go to John Kasich, or you can go to. Jeb Bush on some issues, not all issues, or you can go to George Pataki, for that matter, who, you know, doesn't really register in these polls. But you you don't necessarily need to go to Chris Christie and then be saddled with somebody who, you know, yells at the voters or can seem very personally volatile, you know, has had uh, scandals and so on. Um, And so this leads us maybe perhaps to talk about one of the questions that one of our listeners had. And if you tweet us questions, we will respond about um, electability. Uh, What is the role of electability in the Republican primary. And in fact, there's been some polling on this in Iowa and New Hampshire, the CBS and YouGov uh, uh, poll. And they, and, and I should say that while they ask this, and you can ask people what's most important to them, it's hard for people to separate whether or not they're thinking about the, the, what comes first, what they're, how they're going to make up their mind or the candidate they're thinking of. So it, it, it's hard for people to, to sort those out. But in both Iowa and New Hampshire, the a plurality said their most important quality is experience in getting things done in the business and private sector. So 36% in Iowa, 39% in New Hampshire. A true conservative is far lower in New Hampshire, 13%, a little bit lower in Iowa, 25%. Even lower is experience in, in policy in Iowa. That's 19%. Um, it's a little bit more important in New Hampshire at 26 But electability is really mid-pack. About a fifth of uh, Republicans in Iowa and about a fifth of Republicans in New Hampshire, about the same number, say electability, the ability to defeat the Democrat, is the most important thing they'll be looking at. So, you know, it, which – I think is pretty interesting. It's an interesting answer to the question. It could be why you see so many outsiders like Trump and Carson and Fiorina doing so well. It's fascinating to me that you have this number one characteristic is experience getting things done in business and the private sector. Sad for Mitt Romney. This may have been his election year. This is where people are finally hungry for the rich guy with the business experience, maybe. Um, but you know, as I've heard you mention before, Margie, you know, sometimes people can fit their preferences to match these questions rather than it going the other way around. So if you like Trump, you look at this question and you go, oh, well, yeah, of course, business in the private sector. That's Trump's thing. And you click that. So it's hard to know sort of which came first, the the favorability to Trump or the preference for business uh, business background. Um, but yeah, electability is also kind of redefined this time around because you a couple months ago would have polls showing Trump was clearly trailing, you know, a Hillary Clinton by you know double digit margins that even as as Clinton was beating Republicans by, you know, single digit margins, but still beating them, that Trump was was trailing a lot further. And the fact that that gap has closed and you had now have Donald Trump winning or being very close in some of these national presidential head to heads is is you know, just not what people thought things would be. And so he may actually be someone that if you believe the polls where they are right now, and there is plenty of reason to believe that the polls will change a lot, um, but that electability has kind of been redefined. Uh, the only other thing I have to say about the the Republican primary is that, you know, if you've got Scott Walker, who's kind of playing the Palenti playbook, 
uh, for better or worse, where, you know, expectations were raised really high. He was the conservative governor, but the establishment could like him and he would be an alternative to the Mitt Romney, (laughs) the Jeb Bush, you know, type candidate. And then he kind of flamed out because he made his case in Iowa and then Michelle Bachman ate his lunch. That's exactly what's happening to Scott Walker now. His expectations were high and now Donald Trump is eating his lunch. And then Chris Christie is running the Giuliani playbook. Like, right. oh, I'm going to be really big in New Hampshire. And he actually, most of his staff is former Giuliani folks. Um, but unfortunately, it does not appear that for Chris Christie, he's even going to make it as far as he's doing really well in New Hampshire. And seems at this point to be an unlikely candidate for the Republican nomination. No, and I, I, w- I would argue that the Giuliani, if the Giuliano, Giuliani model is his best hope, that's, you know, that's already a sign that, that he's going to have some trouble. Um, you know, the last thing that I'll add about the sort of outsider electability piece and the willingness of Republican voters to go with an outsider more so than Republican establishment and Republican sort of talking heads is um, you see a majority in the Monmouth poll, majority of Republicans say they feel the Republican Party is doing a bad job of representing the concerns of voters like them. And we've seen in past polling by Pew uh, an increasing number of Republicans feeling unfavorable toward their own party. Um, It's not because necessarily they think the Republican Party is too conservative. There's been some polling that that was released recently that showed uh, Republicans feel that Republicans in Congress have uh, have compromised too much with the president. So it's not that they feel um, that it's gone too conservative, but maybe that it's not speaking toughly tough enough. It's not being tough enough uh, against um, uh, against the powers that be and, and changing things. And so people, you know, both Republicans and Democrats perhaps feel that things have gotten so out of control. Washington is so dysfunctional. Everything is such a mess that they just really need somebody truly outside their own party to to change things. Meanwhile, despite this Trump strength, there's still potentially some trouble in Trumplandia. You have New York Times CBS poll that came out yesterday showing Carson narrowing the gap with Trump pretty substantially. So just in the end of August, so not that long ago, they showed Carson at six and Trump at 24. Now they show Carson at 23 and Trump at 27. That's not a big difference. Um, and that, you know, has come from support from everywhere. I mean, Jeb Bush's dropped down from 13 to 6. Walker's dropped from 10 to 2. Uh, lots of other folks have, you know, other folks have dropped a little bit, but really mainly from those two. Um, so you, you do see Carson really surge. That's been true in a lot of polls where he's second, even if it's not always a close second. He's still second to Trump uh, pretty consistently. Um and, you know, however, maybe that's due to worries among uh, the most religious Republicans who um, who are maybe going to be a little wary of Trump and even more likely to support Carson. He is the most popular candidate among uh, among religious uh, Republicans, according to Gallup. Um, he doesn't have this, obviously, this backlash among voters overall or Latinos that you um, that you see with Trump who consistently is incredibly unpopular uh, with Latinos um, who maybe aren't as likely to know Carson, but they're not as 
overwhelmingly unpopular. Uh, he is not as overwhelmingly unpopular with Latinos as Trump is. Trump is in that Telemundo poll. Seventy percent have a negative view toward Trump. That's of Latinos. That's incredible. Fifty five percent overall. And Carson, seven percent of Latinos are unfavorable toward him. Thirteen percent of uh, folks overall. That's a pretty gigantic difference. And when you take a look, there's this Marist MSNBC Telemundo poll where they asked um, folks across the country, do you think Donald Trump is helping, hurting, or having no impact on the image of the Republican Party? And if you look at registered voters, a majority say hurting, but there are huge differences by party ID on this one. So 70% of Democrats think Trump is hurting, as do 50% of Republicans, but actually a plurality of, uh, pardon me, 50% of independents, but a plurality of Republicans, 48%, think that Donald Trump is helping the image of the Republican Party. Then 35% think he's hurting and 12% say he's having no impact. And then there's another question where they say, well, do you think Donald Trump tells it like it is or is insulting and offensive? And there's almost this perfectly mirror image uh, when you break it by Democrat and Republican. You have uh, you know, 71% of Democrats who thinks he's offensive. You have 71% of Republicans who think he tells it like it is. And then independents are actually surprisingly split on this front, considering that half of independents think Trump is hurting the brand of the party. You also have half of independents who say, well, but he tells it like it is, while only 43% say he's insulting and offensive. So I just don't know, know how you can not think that calling someone a pig or a rapist or murderer is not offensive. Like I just, like those seem very objectively offensive. (laughs) I don't really, I I don't really know what to say. I would agree with you, but I think in this case, it's a lot of voters who are going, you know, he says the stuff that sometimes we think in our minds or that we don't actually get that offended by, but the media tells us we're supposed to get so offended by it. And so, you know, even if I don't love Donald Trump, you know, I'm I'm judging him by his enemies or I'm, you know, I, I'm kind of enjoying this moment of him trolling the GOP. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is entertaining. I'm going to be very interested to see if the moderators in tonight's debate divide up the time relatively evenly across the 11 candidates or if because you now have Trump and Carson in such a commanding position in the polls as of the last two weeks or so, do I mean, so last time around, the questions to Trump were all sort of are trying to figure out, is he is he serious? Is he is this guy actually just trolling right. us all? Um, now it's pretty clear he is serious about running for president. So if the questions will be a little more policy oriented, this go around for him. And then Carson last time was like, didn't get any time at all. Um, and so now that he's in the second place in many of these polls, will the moderators have to give him more attention? Then perhaps he got in that Fox debate. Yeah, so those are my two uh, questions, outstanding questions, you know, heading in. Right. And he's and he's got to answer some serious questions too, foreign policy questions, you know, questions that show his mastery of the material. He can't simply, you know, joke, joke his way and doctor his way. That's not a foundation to be president. You know, he's got to show some gravitas, some issue and policy gravitas rather than simply, you know, don't I seem nice and somewhat interesting that that's not that's that may be necessary, but not sufficient. Although that may be sustaining a lot of why he's doing so well recently. So if you take a look at um, YouGov's polling or pardon me, um, Gallup did did some polling about uh, favorables toward the various Republican candidates and broke it out by religiosity. 
And so you have some candidates like Ted Cruz where there's a pretty big gap between like if you're really religious, you like Ted Cruz. If you are not religious, you are not really a Ted Cruz fan. Um, There are other candidates where there's not really a big gap. Carly Fiorina is, you know, has a 36 point, um, you know, net positive favorable among most religious, um, a 27 point net favorable among not religious. And again, this is just among Republicans and leaners. Right. Um, Kasich, there's no difference. Yeah. Kasich, there's no difference. Ben Carson, um, he there's a bit of a gap between how the religious and non-religious feel about him, but he still has the highest net favorables among the highly religious, among the moderately religious and among the not religious. All three cross tabs. He's got the best net favorables. So at the moment, most of his campaign, I think, is coasting on this. Well, he seems like a nice guy. Again, I don't think that's sustainable long term, but if I were him, I would just want to keep that going for as long as I can and don't say anything tonight, uh, you know, to to ruin that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the Democratic side. So there's still there's tons of news on the Democratic side, even though there's no debate tonight. Um, We have had quite a few polls now in the last few days that have shown Sanders either closing the gap, like in the CBS New York Times poll nationally. If you look at individual states, Sanders is ahead of Clinton, whether it's CBS and their three in their Iowa, New Hampshire poll uh, or um, uh, there was another one as well. But nationally, Sanders is runs a little bit behind Clinton. And also there's the role of Biden. What's going on with Biden? Does Biden pull more away from Clinton or from Sanders? And all of this data has led to a lot of folks saying, you know, the Clinton campaign is in trouble. The upshot had um, two slides that I think are pretty dramatic showing how her favor- her net favorability uh, has dropped considerably to below where it was in 2008 and how uh, her vote overall has dropped, um, vote share has dropped to below where it was or, you know, in 2008 has dropped considerably. And if you look at, and we'll link to it in our show notes, if you look at those patterns, it's pretty hard to make the case that something hasn't happened recently. Something has clearly happened. But the question is, is what has happened due to the emails, due to the fact that she's in a campaign, due to the fact that they're seeing Sanders or Biden or somebody else as an alternative? What what exactly is going on? And, you know, we have the theory here that the emails may be part of it, but doesn't really seem to explain all of it. I mean, if you look at, for example, and here's something I think is particularly useful, and this is looking at the uh, Washington Post ABC poll, they have tracking on honest and trustworthy, uh, understands people like you, for example. They even have a little bit of tracking on how do you approve or disapprove with the way Clinton is handling questions about uh, her email. And you don't really see a whole lot of difference over the last few months. So, you know, you see some, but not dramatic, right? Honest and trustworthy, this entire year has been basically the same, you know, it's bounced around a little bit, but it's not super dramatic. Um, It's was, it's, you know, her, she's worse on honest and trustworthy than she was in 2006, um, where a majority said she was honest in 2006, but, um, and in in 2014, uh, she had a majority, but the rest of the time, a majority or evenly divided, people were evenly divided between saying, yes, she's honest and trustworthy versus no. So it's something she's had, you know, that's had a little bit of, of trouble with for a while. It doesn't mean that it's something that's plummeting all of a sudden in the last few weeks, um, understands the problems of people like you, 
has basically stayed the same this entire year again, according to Washington Post ABC tracking, um, with you know people more or less evenly divided, um, and about identical numbers between May and now, and whether you approve or disapprove of how um, of how uh, she's handling the email story. So. You know, so again, it's not to say that something's not happening because clearly something is. I just don't think that there's some sort of new email story that just caused this, you know, this collapse. I think that's over dramatization. The recent email story that has percolated again in the last couple of weeks. I'm not sure how closely people are following all the twists and turns. I mean, what do you think when you look at these numbers, Kristen? Yeah, it seems to me that there, you know, this the idea that she is now back at 56% saying that she is not honest and trustworthy. The numbers look identical to how they looked in April of 2008 um, when the poll, this same poll asked this same question of voters. Um, and, you know, I, I just think it's it's partially, you know, once she gets into the political scene, you know, her numbers kind of drop. I think the thing that really ought to freak them out is when you look at that upshot post that puts Clinton's favorables from 2016 up next to Clinton's favorables from 2008, you know, Clinton's favorable net favorables, you know, were, a, were fine, but were never great. And that now in, um, you know, 2016, they've really started to, there's like this big, huge downfall of, of her favorables that is faster than the, the downfall that she saw in 2008. So it's it's kind of a combination, I think, a little bit of the email story, but it's just feeding into a narrative um, that's not good for her. But as we've also said on this show, this is not being really driven by Democrats. Hillary Clinton's problems in the Democratic primary are not about the email. The Democratic voters still give her the benefit of the doubt on these issues. This is not what is driving them into the arms of other candidates. And in that ABC Washington Post poll, you know, we took a look at the overall do you approve or disapprove of the way Hillary Clinton is handling questions and looked at the cross tabs by party. And a majority of Democrats still approve of the way Hillary Clinton used her personal email. Now, that plummets pretty significantly to only 31% from independents and only 9% of Republicans. No surprise there. Um, but, you know, for it's it's not when we take a look at the Democratic contest itself and how Hillary Clinton is performing against a Bernie Sanders or a hypothetical Biden candidacy, the email story is not what is driving people to support Bernie Sanders. It's not even necessarily what might drive them to support a Joe Biden. And I think that's why you see Joe Biden get, you know, maybe at one out of every five voters on the Democratic side and some of like the best polls, like a, a poll in South Carolina, for instance, um, you know, but ultimately he's not he, he's not really peeling tons of people away from Hillary Clinton in states like Iowa and New Hampshire over this email story. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't know if he is going to run. I mean, it, it doesn't it seems like you know, it seems like he's working through it in, in real time in a very open way, which is a very Joe Biden thing to do, right? To, um, to be, you know, uh, not to be totally honest in 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 his thinking. Um, so I, I think he recognizes how 
monstrous of an undertaking it is, <laughs> whether or not he, you know, there's a mandate for him to enter or not, regardless, even if everybody wanted him, even if he had 100 percent of Democrats saying we want you in, it would still be a massive undertaking. So I think, you know, it, just, it seems like he's leaning a little bit against a run, um, nonetheless, keeping his options open for a little bit longer while he thinks it through. Um, I, I think the polls suggest that he would get some support. I think it's what's quite likely is once he's in a campaign mode, like with the other candidates, you know, that that sort of halo effect that he has now may may not be there, may be there, may not be there. Um, meanwhile, Sanders is doing well in Iowa and New Hampshire, according to CBS, according to uh, you know, the other national polls that he's closing the gap. CBS New York Times showed him narrowing the gap dramatically from where he was last time just a few months ago. And um, and he's not bringing up the email story. I mean, this is the thing to remember is that he's not going after Clinton. He He's talking about his own issues. And so, you know, and he's not an outsider. So in those two ways, he's, not, you know, not at all like what's going the Trump phenomenon, which I know people want to, you know, connect the two somehow. Um, but there there isn't really that there isn't really that that tie. Um, what he, you know, he did make a lot of news, not just in the polls, but also in uh, going to Liberty University in Virginia and making on Rosh Hashanah, um, uh, making a speech about uh, the, you know, the values behind some progressive views, while recognizing that there are social issues where on um, which, you know, there will never be there will never be agreement between Sanders and uh, the folks in the audience, the students in the audience, but on some of the other core issues and the you know, the the values of, you know, helping your fellow man, um, that maybe there there could be some agreement. And there's something that I think Democrats, you know, found pretty impressive on the left and something that was risk taking. Now, um, you know, whether this means he'll be able to reach out to African-Americans in South Carolina or religious whites in South Carolina or cross, you know, reach out across party lines to folks who would normally not consider a Democratic candidate. You know, I don't know. I think that's still TBD. But I, I think that added to the bits of good news on the on the Sanders campaign uh, this week. What do you think, Kristen? Yes, Sanders continues to have really good uh, uh, continues to have a really good showing. I think the press that he got around that Liberty University speech was really positive and started to earn him some plaudits from the right. Uh, and while while we won't dig into it deeply on the show today, I would sort of commend our our listeners to go take a look at. Harvard University's Institute of Politics polling, over the last couple of years, they've tried to sort young voters into these political typologies. And so you have your traditional liberals, your traditional conservatives, right? People who fit the fiscally conservative, socially conservative bucket and people who fit the fiscally liberal, socially liberal bucket. And then they have these two centrist buckets. And normally when we talk about young voters, we focus on this kind of libertarian-ish, oh, I'm socially liberal, but I'm fiscally conservative bucket. Um, you know, and they, they call those the traditional centrists. But the Harvard poll also pulls out this chunk of young people called the religious centrist, which basically means they are socially conservative, but fiscally liberal. They're liberal on issues like immigration reform, on tax policy, on social welfare programs. And this is a group that I think never really gets talked about. And it's a group that's, um, you know, much more heavily African-American, um, you know, that it's but it's a group that I think doesn't really get a lot of attention. And this is, in my view, pretty clearly the, the chunk of young voters that Bernie Sanders has a big opportunity with and which is why his visit to Liberty University was so savvy. Regardless of what subgroups or demographic groups are going to be important and how people look at values. I mean, the one thing that was in the polling that I thought was pretty incredible this past week came from YouGov. And that is 
support for a military coup. I've never even seen a question about this. You see, 29% of Americans say they would support a military coup. A plurality would support a coup if they felt the federal government was violating the Constitution. There are predictable pattern breakouts here by gender and party where men and Republicans are even more likely to support a coup. Um, but I'm amazed that that you see anybody saying, yes, I'm willing to support a coup in the abstract, you know, that's that in an abstract hypothetical. Yes, I would support a coup. I mean, do you, is this something that you hear people talk about a lot on the right? No. Well, and so this I, I when I first saw this poll, I put this in kind of the bucket of troll poll. And I, it's it's not quite to the level of some of the polls that PPP puts out that are like, haha, look how crazy these Republicans are. But the question I feel like was worded a little bit weirdly. Um, so you have, first of all, anytime you get a question where 30% of respondents say they're not sure, and it's not a question about like knowledge, like, oh, what do you think about Ben Carson, where you can say not sure because you haven't heard of him before, haven't seen him on the news. This is like, how do you feel about a hypothetical situation? And with three out of 10 respondents going like, I don't even know. Um, I just always get skeptical of polls asking people for their take on a hypothetical situation that prior to tar- starting that poll, they had not put more than 10 seconds of thought into. <laughs> so that's my rant about the poll. And YouGov, I love you guys, but I, I don't think this question actually means that people are ready to overthrow the government. You well, do I hope see. So. I, I hope not. So. You see, you see one out of five Democrats, about 29% of independents and 43% of Republicans who took the poll saying, yeah, there's a situation in which I could imagine myself supporting the U.S. military taking the powers of the federal government. But technically, like if we want to get really, you know, weird and overthink this question, like if there was an alien invasion and they body snatched the president, (laughs) then... Maybe in that instance, I could foresee a military coup to impose martial law until we deal with the alien invasion problem. <laughs> being that would be a pretty good question. <laughs> so in that case, maybe I should check yes on this question. I mean, so that's why I, I yes, in one sense, it's troubling. Oh, my God. Twenty nine percent of voters say that they can see themselves supporting a military coup. On the other hand. You can foresee ways in which people like really overthink the question and and or there are so many people that are just kind of not sure what the question's even getting at that I think we can all rest easy that an uprising is not necessarily imminent. So we may be experts or we may purport to be experts, but we found that there's potentially a new group of folks who may be experts on the polls. Um, we learned about this weekend. Kristen, you were watching in real time their expertise <laughs> learned on the fly. <laughs> what group of experts are we talking about? <laughs> the Miss America pageant contestants. So pageants, you may, you think of big hair, you think of bling, you think of bright teeth. And yet political junkies, if you were like me and you tuned in to this once a year spectacle of weird American tradition – could find something to love. So there were seven finalists at the end of the Miss America pageant who were asked what is called the onstage question, where each of them gets a different question about some kind of cultural or current events issue. And this year, the questions were pretty intense. It was the sort of thing that you can imagine contestants tonight on the GOP debate stage being asked. Should Planned Parenthood get federal funding? How do you feel about the Black Lives Matter movement? Um, I mean, these were questions that 
it would I don't even know if the 2016 candidates could answer particularly well right. in 20 seconds in a sequin ball gown in high heels with a lot of hairspray and pressure going on. Um, but my favorite question that was asked of one of these candidates was asked of Meg McGuffin of Miss Alabama, who I immediately tweeted that I want to get her on the show and she favorited my tweet. So a girl I can think that's a yes. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's a yes. Maybe we'll get Miss Alabama on the show next week. Um, but she was asked this question, quote, according to a poll released this week, Donald Trump is leading Republican candidates by 32 percent of the votes. Why do you think he's leading by such an overwhelming margin? And you should have seen me. I like stood up from my couch and was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. They just asked her a question analyzing the polls. If Meg McGuffin had been listening to the pollsters, she would have been able to nail that question. I know. Um, And actually, her response was pretty good. She said, I think Donald Trump is an entertainer. I think he says a lot of what's on people's minds, but I think that the Republican Party should be absolutely terrified of all the attention he's taking from incredible candidates like Jeb Bush and Chris Christie, who could absolutely do the job of president. And if I were Republican, I would be absolutely terrified of that. Thank you. (laughs) So first, I want to just say Donald Trump is not leading the polls by 32 points. He was leading, I guess, with 32 points. And that was the questioner who was wrong, not Meg McGuffin. Questioner who was wrong, not Meg McGuffin. Um, And, you know, this is a question that you and I, I think, have both been asked on TV. Yes. Um, I think you could go on TV to talk about any single topic and you might be asked this question. Why is Trump leading at the polls? That is the question du jour. Yeah. but so, you know, she her her answer, I think, was was pretty decent that she pointed out that people like him because he's an entertainer. He's got higher name ID, um, but that there's potential damage to the Republican brand, which earlier in the show we discussed that the, both of those things are potentially the case. Um, but this was, you know, the fact that she was asked about the polls. She was not the only candidate who was asked a political question. There were also questions about Kim Davis, Planned Parenthood. Um, and Tom Brady. So Margie, what was your take on this, the Planned Parenthood question? So the Planned Parenthood question, I mean, the Washington Post ranked all of the politi- political answers from the contestants, um, and she was deemed the winner because she had a data point. She said, you know, Planned Parenthood spends $500 million on uh, on uh, breast cancer coverage and mammograms, um, I think her answer was. And that's an actual date. She had a number. And I'm assuming that the contestants were told, and I did not watch the pageant, although now I wish I had. I'm assuming they were told there would be political questions so they could you know, they could think about what they what they might be asked and try to study up things. Maybe they were given some potential topics so they could study a variety of topics more specifically. Um, but they all, you know, some of them seemed vaguely prepared, um, you, <laughs> you know, more, you know, as prepared as anyone really who goes on TV to talk about politics for folks who, you know, I'm assuming are not breathlessly following, you know, the latest twists and turns of the campaign. Um, you also saw, you know, and I mean, a, a thing that should be noted is that all of the answers, the top answers were somewhat in alignment with public polling, right? So the Planned Parenthood result is actually the fact that she said, you know, we shouldn't cut funding from Planned Parenthood, we shouldn't shut down the government for Planned Parenthood, whatever her her specific was, was her specific answer was actually in line with CNN recent polling that shows support for Planned Parenthood. People want to... funding for Planned Parenthood to continue. The Trump is hurting the party question is in line with where voters overall are, as we noted. And then there was another question about Kim Davis. 
Um, which, you know, was not deemed by the Washington Post to be the best political answer. The question was, did she, you know, did uh, the does the order for her to issue same sex marriage license violate her religious religious freedom? Um, and she said, yes, she violates the law, which, you know, the Post reports said, well, you know, she didn't say whether it's it violates her religious freedom. She just said she, you know, she didn't uphold the law. Um, you, you know, I, I understand that argument. I, I think that's a pretty high bar. It's, you know, we're talking about a legal question here for a pageant answer. I mean, you know, I, I'm amazed that this that these, you know, gals really, you know, answer these as well as well as they did. I mean, for, you know, they answer these political questions better than. Some might argue Sarah Palin answered questions in her Katie Couric interview, you know, which I think is really great. I think that's a you know sign that these girls were, you know, these women were pretty well informed. Her answer about whether uh, or not Kim Davis should be required to issue same-sex marriage licenses, which it sounds like she would support um, this uh, this uh, contestant, Ms. Roberts, um, is in line with where voters are, according to the most recent. Washington Post ABC poll, where by two to one, folks say that Kim Davis should ha- should be required to issue marriage licenses. Sixty three percent say she should be required. Almost half say that she should um, go to jail um, if she doesn't do it. So, I mean, there's real clear support here for that. Um, and so it, I guess it's not, you know, it, it's it's not a surprise that, uh, you know, maybe there's some numbers showing some polling showing support for um, the pageant overall. Maybe this is what they need to do in order to stay relevant and top of mind and keep fresh and current is to have some of these political questions. Um, Maybe you have, you know, fewer people saying, I don't know, I guess you have about as many people saying as now as saying in 1990 that they would support their daughter and be proud if she wanted to enter the Miss America pageant. You have about two thirds saying yes, that's in 2000. So maybe that's a little bit different now. Um, In 2016%, said the contestant should be based on looks. Um, 67% say it should be based on talent and intelligence. So people want to see it more as a talent and intelligent test, which, you know, which I think um, maybe this is where where they're headed. Although, as we see, the person who had the worst political answer, as rated by the Washington Post, was actually the person who won. So maybe there's a little bit of room for growth there. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, you watched it. What do you think? Do you feel like it was a talent and intelligence test or still a beauty contest? Oh, I think a lot of folks, what they don't realize about the way the Miss America pageant works is that a huge chunk of the candidates, or the, the, the candidates, the contestants' scores come from this interview that they do kind of behind the scenes. And I had never, I'm not a pageant person. I had never done, I never did this growing up or anything. Um, But actually the interview that they do beforehand, it looks like a White House press conference. Like they stand at a podium and they're kind of grilled on some of these public affairs type questions. And then that comprises the biggest chunk of their score. Um, So by the time they show up, like in the first five minutes of the pageant, they eliminate, you know, 37 of the contestants because they had the lowest scores on this like composite thing that mostly includes this public affairs interview. So the pageant is technically more about, you know, poise and how you can present your ideas on these issues. But of course, anytime there's something on TV that includes a bathing suit portion people are going to go like, wait a minute. And interestingly, I found this great poll that the ABC Washington Post poll did in 1995, where they said, should Miss America drop its swimsuit competition? 
Um, and you actually had two th- or um, 76% of men, thanks guys, saying, no, you should continue it. Um, but even 61% of women said you should continue the tradition of having a swimsuit competition. So, you know, Miss America kind of, I think, tries to blend the two, whereas Miss USA, the pageant that Donald Trump just sold, is much more explicit that it's just about being hot. And that's the pageant where, by the way, a few years ago, there was the Miss California USA who got in trouble because she gave this answer on gay marriage that was sort of out of the mainstream. So these pageants do often ask these current affairs type questions. I think they aren't necessarily always as tough edged as maybe the ones that the candidates got, the contestants, I keep calling them candidates. Clearly you can see where my mind is at. <laughs> um, but the, as you mentioned, the I know we should have the CNN, if the CNN debate had folks in a bathing suit, right? That seems like no, preposterous, no. right? Like who, wh- no, why no. would we want that? You know, but I, somehow we know. want women in bathing suits to answer political questions. Uh, but the, you know, they also do a talent portion and I, I proposed on Twitter. I wonder what each of the 2016 candidates talent would be. <laughs> uh, and you had folks responding things like Ben Carson performing uh, cert, you know, neurosurgery on stage. Um, <laughs> I don't know what their talents would all be, but no. I, I the 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 woman who won, by the way, as you mentioned, had sort of the worst answer of the night. But I think she was forgiven because she got asked a weird question, and her question was about Tom Brady. So Miss Georgia, our new Miss America, was asked, the New England Patriots quarterback Tom Brady was suspended for his part in the so-called deflate gate scandal and then was reinstated by the courts. Legalities aside, did Tom Brady cheat? And her response was kind of all over the place. Well, first she asked him to repeat the question because she couldn't hear it. And then she said, well, did he cheat? That's a really good question. I'm not sure. I think I'd have to be there to see the ball and feel it and make sure it was deflated or not deflated. But if there was question, then yeah, I guess he cheated. If there was question to be had, then he definitely cheated and he should have been suspended. That's not fair. So, (laughs) you know, as the Washington Post says, you can see her formulating her opinion in real time. Margie. I've done that. Definitely. First of all, I've done that. And if I was asked, I mean, if somebody wanted to do a super cut of terrible Margie answers on television, which they're more than welcome to do, they'd probably find one like this. If someone were to wake me, you know, if I were to go on TV, for example, like I am today and somebody sprung me a Tom Brady question, I may, in fact, answer (laughs) like this contestant did um, since it's not my area. And if it's not your area, you know, you have to learn. And there's a trick to not a trick, but there's a skill to figuring out how to answer or question that you're not prepared for, you don't know the answer for, you don't want to, you know, you don't necessarily want to commit. How do you kind of dodge that tricky situation? It's not the way that she did it here. That's something that takes some practice. Um, and, uh, you know, you either want to just sort of stick with it or, you know, certainly wherever you begin in the in the beginning, you should end up. I'm probably doing this same mistake right this minute. In fact. So, <laughs> so, um, so it just goes to show even, even talking about talking about sports is not my area. Um, but yeah, so she, you know, nonetheless didn't hold her back from winning. So I guess that goes out the theory that you need to be able to speak coherently in order to win these things. Um, but it, you know, it does show that people are, you know, all over the map sort of on Tom Brady and maybe not even sure how much they even care, you know? I mean, I guess it reflects that, which is certainly what we've seen out in the world, right? That people may think that he did something bad, but, you know, are people really bent out of shape about it? I, you know, I, I don't know. So it turns out that Tom Brady's fellow NFL players are not particularly bent out of shape about it. So ESPN, so, you know, the NFL has had its first week of regular season games. 
Oh, I just realized I need to check and make sure I put in waiver claims on my fantasy football team. <laughs> no, I'm like, now I'm realizing this in real time. Like, no, 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 we have to stop the podcast. I have to kick people up off of waivers. Oh, I've made a huge mistake. I don't know what um, language you're speaking. Um, but so ESPN surveyed over 100 current NFL players. This is not like a random sample. So it's not a scientific poll, but no. nonetheless, um, they found that of the people they talked to, 72% think that the Patriots definitely did intentionally cheat, but only 16% were really upset about it. And so as a majority only, or, or, so as a result, a majority actually don't, don't think the Patriots should be labeled as cheaters. Like they think that you know, teams do this kind of stuff all the time and like intentionally making the footballs less inflated is just not that big a deal. Um, and the players were actually not huge fans of the idea that Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the NFL, can just kind of hand down punishments from on high. Um, only 12% think that Roger Goodell should do that. Amazing. The- even players don't, you know, they have low ratings toward Goodell. I mean, he's you know, he's somebody who is not doing well in the press, right, in the last year or so. And the fact that players even feel that way, I think, is notable. Yeah, well, and then there's this the, the question of, I think part of the reason why players don't care so much about the deflate gate scandal is that deflating a football does isn't, you know, maybe it's affecting the outcome of the game. It's not like when the Patriots got in trouble for cheating a few years ago where the Spygate scandal where they were like taping other team signals like that pretty clearly can give you an advantage in a game and is against the rules the deflated football like there's question about how much that really affects things at all and that when ESPN asks these players what the biggest problem is in football they think that cheap shots and deliberate injuries are the most outlandish form of cheating Mm. rather than like noodling with the football. I mean, maybe Um, also there's just some element of people feel both people overall and players the way people feel about politics, which is, you know, everybody does it. Everybody's, you know, corrupt in some minor way. I can't get worked up over all of it. Yeah. Deflategate is the campaign finance reform (laughs) of the the illegal postcards of (laughs) of the NFL. Right. Um, but some last little tidbits of polling. They uh, AP also has been doing this uh, polling of NFL players. And a couple of years ago, they asked about concussions. So this is the big – you've got a Will, uh, Will Smith movie coming out all about the NFL and concussions and the long-term health effects of playing football. And when the AP asked players um, a few years ago, a majority said that they would stay in a football game and try to hide a concussion if they suffered one. Um, so now, you know, pro football, they they say they have these concussion protocols where if you get hit in the head, you have to come off the sideline. You have to do all these tests. And if there's any doubt, you can't go back into the game. Um, but does that kind of create incentives for players to like not, you know, does the NFL actually have adequate protocols in place or are they really creating long term damage for these players? Um, so that's the, the big, I think, question facing the NFL and that is kind of the public policy angle for the NFL as we head into the season. So moving on to another All-American topic, and that is the California, the you know, never-ending environmental hazards going on in California. This is a recent water supply problems that you've probably been hearing about a lot. Certainly, if this was happening on the East Coast, we'd be hearing about it every single day. I think it's getting undercovered as a result of you know, media being mostly out here. Um, but there's been a poll by some friends of ours, uh, American Viewpoint, the Republican firm, and GQR, the Democratic firm, uh, did a poll for uh, USC and LA Times. Um, 
um, and they release quite a bit, which you can find, and we'll link to the show notes. What is responsible for California's water supply problems? And I guess this is perhaps an obvious answer. The number one answer is not enough snow and rain, um, but also, you know, people using too much water is pretty high up there. You have 80% saying, you know, too much water, 70% saying, 72% saying too much growth or development. Global climate change, about two-thirds say that. Um, old delivery systems, 79%. You also saw uh, in the poll a lot of bipartisan um, agreement in terms of how much of a crisis you think this is and how, you know, how, how important is this? Um, should there be, uh, you know, I, I found that pretty, I, I think pretty consistent with the fact that, uh, you know, you have Republicans and Democrats experiencing the drought the same, you know, in a similar way. You're not talking about a hypothetical climate change problem. You're talking about your actual experience. But there is a real party gap, though, in what to do about it, whether agriculture is responsible or whether um, whether environmental regulations should be loosened as a way to fix this. I'm, I'm not quite sure. I guess maybe I'm missing some knowledge. How would a envi- loosening of environmental regulations solve this problem? I guess people are probably tired of some of the, you know, water use regulations. I know there's been ways that people are trying to get around them. Um, I don't know how that fixes yeah, the problem. Though. I think there's also stories, like I think there was a story a couple of years ago where there was some kind of like very special species of fish living in a reservoir somewhere. And so they needed to like do something to be able to store more water, but it would have hurt the fish. I, I, I'm not 100% clear on the details of this, but I believe there are some regulations that protect certain species. And by protecting them, it kind of prevents people from being able to like dam up rivers and preserve more water and stuff. So I think that's, that's when, when they say loosening environmental regulations, that's part of it. And this is one of the things where there's a big party gap. So as you mentioned, you know, both parties are really experiencing this as a crisis. Um, but there's a big gap. So certain, and certain pieces of this, like what's causing the crisis, there's bipartisan agreement as well. Both parties agree, lack of rain, old water delivery systems, growth of development, that these are big things. Dems are slightly more than Republicans to say people are using too much water. Republicans are slightly more likely to say that those environmental restrictions um, are, are playing a role. But on things like climate change and agriculture, the party gap is huge. So climate change is actually one of the top things that Democrats say is causing the drought. Um, 72% of Democrats say, uh, 72% of Democrats say that agriculture is in fact very or somewhat responsible, while only 52% of Republicans, 85% of Democrats say climate change is very or somewhat responsible, the second highest factor behind not enough rain. But for Republicans, climate change is way at the bottom. Now, granted, you still have 46% saying climate change is playing very or somewhat of a large role in this. So it's not like California Republicans are all climate deniers. They are just less inclined to blame climate change than they are more kind of immediate or short term things like we don't have enough rain. And then there's also big gaps on how to deal with the crisis kind of as a result. So both parties agree strongly with 
we need to recycle more water. We need to capture stormwater better. We need to store more in aquifers. We need to do more desalinization. Um, Republicans are more likely, though, to say we need new dams. We need to get rid of some of these environmental regulations. And Democrats are more likely to say we need to increase um, utility rates and make farmers cut back. So it's kind of like the uh, if you this is a weird analogy, but whenever we talk about dealing with the debt ceiling and it's like, well, do we need more revenue or do we need to cut spending Um, here? You know, it's do we need to store more water or do we need to use less of it? And you see this gap where Republicans think. We need to be able to store up more water. We shouldn't tell people to use less of it. And you have Democrats saying, we just need to be more thoughtful about how we use our water. You know, and despite all this, because look, this is not a tricky situation where you have a state as huge as California that is politically fractured as so many different climates and environments and in special interests and then tell folks to use less water on their lawn. Um, but despite all that, Jerry Brown, 50 percent approve how he's handling this. So, I, you know, I think those are pretty good numbers given how tricky this is. And I think, you know, he has, at least from my observation, he has he is liberated by the fact that he's been doing this for a long time. He's, you know, he, he he's he's just, you know, sort of go, doing whatever he thinks is right. You know, <laughs> he's not, you know, trying to um, be everybody's sort of best friend. He's trying to make tough decisions. And if that means, you know, speaking, speaking, using strong language and, and having some tough rules, um, I think my sense is he's not afraid to do that. I think I saw on Twitter this past week that um, – speculation that Jerry Brown could jump jump into the the Democratic presidential race. Is that just Twitter chatter? That's not a real thing, right? I haven't heard it. I remember he came when he ran last time. He came to my university and um, we saw him speak. So, you know, I guess that dates both him and me. I don't know if he's, you know, I don't know if he'd do it. I don't know if, you know, I my sense is he wouldn't want to do it. But what do I know? I'm I'm just a I'm just a lonely p- podcaster in my closet, but my sense is, you know, he he's got a good gig and he's doing a good job. I'm not sure he would leave that to go uh, run for president at this point. Um, well, the good news out of California, by the way. So I am here in California for the Republican debate, and yesterday there was rain. There was rain as I was landing. There was rain as I was driving around last evening. So. At least in L.A. here, we did get a little bit of rain yesterday. So that's that's a good sign. That's good. So um, so that means I can eat almonds and avocados now and I guess pumpkin spice. Right. What do you, <laughs> those oh, are the God. things that I can now eat. What do you think, Kristen? Things I have now Googled pulling on pumpkin spice. So um, right now we are inter- entering fall. Pumpkin spice is back. Um, and I was doing focus groups earlier this week. And in, if you have ever done focus groups, you know that there's all of this great like snack food at the focus group facility that is very tempting, big bowls of M&Ms and things. And there was this bowl of Hershey Kisses that was orange. And I was confused. And so I picked one up and I, I thought maybe it was just like a fall themed wrapper. Like we're already breaking out the Halloween candy. No, no. This was a pumpkin spice Hershey kiss. Pumpkin spice. Uh, I was not a fan of the flavor. Um, And I'm actually somebody that has been known to have a pumpkin spice latte occasionally. I'm not one of these obsessives. I don't understand the cult around them. But and I think that they kind of like turn your mouth orange, which is creepy. But um, yeah, pumpkin spice lattes, pumpkin spice has begun to invade all sorts of other food. So um, there was some polling done uh, that I think Forbes did an article showing 
or pardon me, not polling, but rather a sort of analysis of pumpkin spice food flavors and found that there's been a slight increase in pumpkin-flavored pie filling, um, but an increase in pumpkin-flavored beer, coffee, um, and then other has really increased. This may be where my my pumpkin spice Hershey Kisses are landing. Or yogurt. Ugh, that sounds pretty gross, too. I mean, I like the actual pumpkin or butternut squash, like, in, you know, in soup or risotto or something like that, sort of shoehorning some kind of imaginary pumpkin spice thing into something else. That's not so much for me. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, pumpkin beer is... I, it kind of is hit or miss for me. I've had pumpkin beer that I've liked and I've had others that are just too sweet and in your face. Um, but you know, I fall is my favorite season. So even if it means sometimes we get a little bit of weird developments in say the candy industry or the yogurt industry, I will take it because pumpkin spice season means football. It means sweaters. It means the weather is nice. Um, it's just happy times for me. So I'll Election take it. time, sometimes. Election time, sometimes. So ring on the pumpkin spice, even if we think the flavors are weird, it signals a very happy time of the year. So uh, other polling on other important things that you can do this time of year. We investigated last time we said, can you wear white after Labor Day? And I said, I think shoes are no go, but clothes, yes. And so TJ Maxx weighed in with a poll. Um, we don't know how scientific it was. We don't know what their response rate was. We don't know what their sample frame was exactly. But a majority of women say, go ahead, wear white after Labor Day. Um, even open toe shoes are fine. It's long as it's weather and seasonally appropriate. Everyone says it's okay. It's just a sign that, you know, the rules of the rules are now loosening up, whether you're talking about wearing black as a, to a wedding, which I did this past weekend, or <laughs> wearing open toe shoes after Labor Day. Uh, TJ Maxx says that women say it's okay. And then Marist, our friend's uh, at the Marist poll, they did um, some polling around New York Fashion Week about favorite colors to wear. That's a little bit more divided as to whether or not they think women dress for style and men dress for comfort. There, people are pretty overwhelmingly in agreement. Women dress for style, men dress for comfort. And then the favorite cl color to wear by just a hair is black. 21% of women say their favorite color to wear is black with green and orange and yellow just at the bottom in terms of favorite color to wear, um, which, you know, I, I think makes sense. It's certainly consistent with what I like to wear. But I don't know. What do you think, Kristen? What do you think of these polls? Yeah, I, I thought that this poll makes total sense to me. So, you know, favorite colors to wear, blue and black being atop that field. That makes sense, especially if you're talking about a poll for both men and women. Um, in colors prefer not to wear. 20% of people said pink was the color they preferred not to wear. Um, and I would love in the future if the Marist poll folks ever do this question. Um, you know, 83% of women say they dress for style, um, but I would love to know, are they dressing for style for what they think is attractive? Are they dressing for what they think other people of their same gender will think is attractive? Or are they dressing for what they think members of the opposite gender would think are attractive? Or is there a way to structure that question? Because I've heard stories before of people being like, well, I know this is trendy, but guys think this is really ugly. Like right now, high-waisted jean shorts are very in, but like I don't know any guys that think high-waisted jean shorts are a good look. Um, so, you know, for when women are, when like young women are wearing them to be really trendy, are they they're not dressing to impress guys. Are they dressing to impress people who also understand the trend? Anyhow, I'd love right. to see polling on understanding how people decide which trends they're going to 
go with or not? Like what's, what's the intention there? Yeah. And are they dressing for comfort or dressing for something that looks flattering? You know, and and then I guess this is a little bit unrelated, but in terms of figuring out who wants to wear who, I was served a Facebook ad for dress pants made out of yoga pant materials. And I could see how whoever was doing the targeting (laughs) for this would be like, we want someone like Margie. That's exactly who we need. You know, someone (laughs) break about to go back to work is going to definitely want dress pants made out of yoga pant material. But in fact, no, I do not want that. If you're listening and you're the person in charge of that digital campaign, please take me off your list. (laughs) Um, You mistargeted me. You mistargeted me. I can see why you would think that, but in fact, no. Um, So, okay, key findings. Lots of candidates are going to be feeling some sort of burn, whether it's from Bernie Sanders or a barb from Trump. We'll learn more tonight. Wednesday. Can we be bipartisan against droughts? What about against coups? Maybe. We'll see. The polling is a little divided. Uh, Yet fashion and football are great areas for polling. Lots more questions to be explored. Um, But if you're confused about where the polls are or uh, about polls in general, you should just ask a beauty pageant contestant because they seem to know quite a bit. So Kristen, where can people find us? You can find us on Twitter. Margie's at at Margie O'Meara. I'm at at Casoltis Anderson. You can find both of us at at The Pollsters. Tweet us your latest thoughts, suggestions, polls that you've come across that are interested interesting. Um, We'll talk about them here on the show. You can also find us on Facebook where we post links to polls that we find throughout the week. Um, We are also available at thepollsters.com and you can subscribe to us via whichever podcast service uh, you prefer, whether it's Stitcher, um, iTunes or more. Great. See you next week. Have a good one, guys.